Would you all please gather back into uh, your seats and go ahead and take a seat. I would encourage you to grab your Bible or if you don't have one with you as you're making your way to your seat, go by uh, those tables back there in the back and take one of those Bibles. You're welcome to have one of those. Go ahead and find 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 1. I want to welcome all of you again. Uh, My name is Nathan Smith and I'm one of the three pastors here and um, it's my privilege to preach from the Word of God this morning. We are in that book that I just mentioned, 2 Thessalonians, a letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to the new church in Thessalonica. This is just our third week in a short series that we're doing. It's a short book, so it's a short series uh, that we're doing through this uh, letter, 2 Thessalonians. And uh, the tagline that we have given for this series overall is that the focus of 2 Thessalonians, we believe, is kind of a tagline and a summary, is established in the hope of our coming Lord. And so when we say that, what are we hoping for? Well, first of all, our our firm hope is that our Lord is coming. We say established in the hope of our coming Lord. Our hope is that he is coming. It's a firm hope. When we say hope, we're not talking about uh, kind of wishful thinking. We're talking about an assured, expectant, a certain hope. And so we're sure that the Lord is coming. And so this incredible, overwhelming, joyful hope that we will one day marvel to see our Lord Jesus. And that's, that's going to be a big focus of the message next week. What, what that marveling, uh, how and why we will marvel and what that will look like when Christ returns. And without that hope of his return, that he is coming, then we don't have anything else to hope for. That's the foundation of all of our hope. But once we have our faith grounded in that hope that our Lord is returning, that's, with that as the root, what are some of the branches that grow out of that root? Well, a lot of things. We hope for uh, freedom from, from loss, freedom from fear, from pain, from death. We hope for the end of our struggle with sin. Amen. And as we think about all these things we hope for, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But there's another aspect of our gospel hope that may not come as quickly to mind as some of these other things do. And that is our hope that when he returns, Christ will sit enthroned and that he will judge everyone who has ever lived. And that in that judgment, he will judge perfectly. He will judge with perfect justice. So part of our gospel hope is actually that those who reject God and oppress his people will one day be punished. And that those who, through faith in Jesus, persevere in doing good will be rewarded. So the Bible directs us to hope that on the day of judgment, the justice of God will be vindicated. And by vindicated, I mean that God will be seen to be perfectly just. That there will be no question among Mankind, nor among angels, that God carries out justice perfectly. And the reason this matters is that God's justice, his ability to judge righteously as a display of his perfect righteousness, God's justice is a display of his glory. And in this age, that facet of God's glory is obscured. It's, it's hidden. We don't see it clearly. 
And that's because there is right now on earth and ever since the fall, there has been um, apparent and abundant injustice in the world, right? I mean, think about almost from the beginning, Cain, he killed Abel. Justice dictates an eye for an eye. Cain should have been executed, but God didn't kill Cain. In fact, God put a special mark on Cain to protect him and to keep him from being attacked. And after that, Cain got married. Cain had children. Was that right? Is that just? Doesn't appear to be. And then on down through history, human traffickers, abusers, all kinds of oppressors in this world, those kinds of people often get filthy rich and live in luxury by stomping down the the poor and the weak. And so where is God's justice in that? And what about the frequent persecution of God's people, of the church, those who suffer unjustly for their faith in God, while those who persecute them prosper? Is it right for God to stand by and let these things happen? All of these kinds of things bring the justice of God into question, and seeing these things can shake the faith of those who don't have their hope firmly set on the return of Christ. And I believe that addressing this issue of uh, God's justice and that it's obscured in the world today, that we don't see it clearly, I think that addressing that issue is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the saints in Thessalonica. And we see him addressing this in chapter 1 in verses 5 through 10 that we're going to be looking at today and again uh, next Sunday. So today, again, I would invite you to open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to be focusing today mainly on verses 5 through 7, and Jason will be focusing on the rest of the section next week. But in the original language, all of this is one sentence, and so all these verses are very closely interconnected. And so that being the case, while each of our messages will have a different focus, there's going to be some overlap. And so I'm going to read through verse 10 today, even though we're not going to get there today. And then as we go through this, you'll see this, that verse 5 actually connects backwards as well, links to verse 4, so we can't really understand verse 5 unless we look back at verse 4, and then the Greek sentence actually begins in verse 3. So this was all very tightly connected in the Apostle Paul's mind as he was writing it, and so I'm going to read the sermon text, and I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 3, and I'm going to ask you to stand as I read. We stand to honor this as the word of God, because we believe that it is the word of God. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment 
of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Let's pray. God, we ask for you to open up your word to us. I don't have the ability to do that for myself, much less anyone else who's here. So I ask, Spirit, that you would make your word clear. I pray that you would keep me from speaking any untruth or even anything that's unclear that obscures the truth. And I pray that the justice that is yours, God, would be magnified among your people today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please have a seat. So Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians for several purposes. Um, One purpose was to strengthen these Christians so that they would continue to persevere under the face of in the face of ongoing persecution. They had been persecuted. Paul knows this, and he knows that it's still happening. It's, it's an ongoing persecution. So he wants to strengthen them. A second purpose for this letter was to reassure those who were scared by the thought that the day of the Lord had already come. We'll talk about that a little bit um, today, but really the focus um, on that purpose will be in a few weeks from now. The third major purpose for the letter was addressing a problem in the church, which was that some of the church members were refusing to work uh, and earn their own living. They were just freeloading. And we'll get to that in uh, a number of weeks later. I don't know how many weeks, Um, but that's towards the end of the letter. But in those verses that I just read in um, in the first chapter, verses 3 through 10, I think that Paul's main aim is the first of those purposes, that he's strengthening these believers to continue persevering in the face of persecution. And as we'll see, one of the ways that he does that, one of the ways that he strengthens them is connected to the second purpose of reassuring them that the day of the Lord has not yet come. But the reason I started off talking about God's justice is that I believe that Paul is grounding his encouragement for this persecuted church in the justice of God. And by justice of God, I mean the justice that belongs to God, the justice that is an attribute of God, that it is God's nature to be just, that he is a righteous God, and therefore all his judgments are righteous as they display the glory of the justice that innately belongs to God. The justice of God is one of his glories. And my hope this morning is that you'll see how And that Paul is grounding his encouragement in the justice of God and how God's justice encourages us to be more firmly established in the hope of our coming Lord. And so let's look closely at verse 5 as we start. Verse 5 begins with this phrase, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And this is actually pretty challenging to understand. Uh, At least two questions arise immediately. They did for me as I began looking at this text. The first question is, what is the evidence that Paul is talking about? And then secondly, once we determine what that evidence is, then how does that evidence show the righteous judgment of God? And so addressing that first question, what is the evidence 
Well, it refers back to something that Paul has just said, but what exactly is he referring back to? Is it the Thessalonian Christians' steadfastness and faith? Or is it the persecutions and afflictions? Or it's even possible that, that Paul is referring back to his and, and his uh, missionary partners boasting about these Christians. What is the evidence that he's talking about? And that's not an easy question to answer because he doesn't state it plainly. And the Greek grammar leaves it just as ambiguous as the ESV translation does. And it's been interpreted in all the ways that I just mentioned by various eminent and uh, respected scholars. And so I spent many hours, many joyful hours this week, uh, and actually last week, um, trying to determine which one of these it is. What is the evidence that he's talking about? And I spent a lot of time on it because it seemed to me that it's essential for understanding these verses. And in understanding these verses for gaining the hope that the Spirit who inspired these verses intends to instill in us as we read these verses. And so I think it's important that we understand what the evidence is that he's talking about in verse 5. And so the fruit of my studies is that I've become solidly convinced that the evidence that Paul is talking about is the actual persecution that these Christians were suffering under. And I'll give you three reasons why I've come to that conclusion. One is that uh, word order isn't as important in Greek as it usually is in English. Um, but when the Greek grammar leaves options, as it does here, the word order can give us a clue as to the author's intended meaning. And, and so here, the closest words in the sentence that the Greek word translated as evidence is likely to refer to are those words, persecutions and afflictions. And in fact, um, the words at the beginning of verse 5, this is, those two words were added by translators in order to start a new sentence and to connect it. Um, but they aren't actually there in the original. So more literally translated, those words wouldn't be there. There would be something like a, a maybe a comma or a hyphen. I'm not actually sure how you're supposed to use hyphens. I just throw them in. Randomly, I do the same with commas too, but something would be there other than those two words. And so that section, if we start from verse 4, would read something like this. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And so I think even in English, hearing it like that indicates that Paul is probably talking about the persecutions and afflictions as being the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So that's the first reason. Then secondly, the persecutions and afflictions are what Paul keeps in focus as he continues on in the passage. He doesn't mention, again, the steadfast faith of the Thessalonians. Uh, instead, at the end of verse 5, he mentions the suffering that they are undergoing for the sake of the kingdom and in verses 6 and 7, he mentions the afflictions that they are being afflicted with. He doesn't mention at all how they are responding to this persecution, these afflictions. So it remains his focus. And then thirdly, I think that understanding their persecution to be the evidence of God's righteous judgment, I think that that connects best with Paul's aims, his goals in the letter, and in this section Especially, again, those aims being to fortify their faith in the midst of persecution and 
to convince them that the day of the Lord has not yet come. And uh, this last one, hopefully as I go through the rest of this text and this message, you will see uh, more clearly why I believe that to be the case. But for these three reasons, I think that what Paul's saying here is the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring are evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And a few minutes ago, I said that when I looked at this, uh, I saw two questions immediately that arose in my mind about that first phrase of verse 5. So the first was what we just talked about. What is the evidence that Paul's talking about? The second question, though, was how does that evidence show the righteous judgment of God? And now, based on our answer to that first question, the second question really becomes, how does the persecution of the saints show the righteous judgment of God? How does the persecution of the saints show the righteous judgment of God? And understanding how Paul answers this question uh, is a little bit challenging because it isn't immediately obvious, um, or at least it wasn't to me as I looked at this text, how a Christian suffering under persecution provides evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Because on the face of it, it kind of seems to be the opposite, doesn't it? That if, if God is a God who judges righteously, then those who are doing good, those who are proclaiming the gospel, those who are God's children, why are they suffering? Why are they being persecuted? And why are those who persecute them suffering no apparent consequences? And I think that for these Thessalonian Christians, that that struggle, that question of how is it right, how is it just that we are suffering for the sake of the kingdom? I think for them, that struggle probably went deeper than it might for us. Uh, and I say that because we know from Acts 17 that many of these Christians were converted Jews, but others weren't. These were all new Christians, but some of them had just newly been introduced to the true God. Many of them didn't know the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't know God's character. And not knowing God's character, they probably drew some assumptions from what they knew in their religious upbringing. These were people who had been soaking their whole lives in the worship of the Greek gods, the Roman gods, a number of localized pagan gods, some, um, some animism or worshiping spirits of, of trees, and all these things. This is what they had grown up doing. And these kinds of so-called gods, um, they were notoriously capricious. Capricious means they could change their mind on a whim. They could change their mind in a second. You couldn't rely on what they were thinking. They were driven by their emotions. People believed that uh, what these gods approved of one day, they might disapprove of the next day. That a person could be a god's favorite person one day and be their enemy the next day. They told stories about how these gods would uh, put humans through torture just basically for the sake of entertainment or sometimes to spite one another. And so just imagine yourself in that context. This is what you've known of gods where all suffering was seen as evidence of having done something to displease the gods. And you were supposed to figure out what that was. What did I do wrong? Why am I suffering? And all prosper, prospering, anyone who prospered, they were seen as having been blessed by the gods. And especially in those who prospered in having power over others, that was seen as clear evidence that the gods 
are blessing this person. So they have power. They're able to oppress and use others for their own pleasure. And this is what you've known your whole life. But now you've put your faith in Jesus. You've been told about this true God. You worship Jesus as God. And you, you think that you're obeying him. You're honoring him in the way that you were taught by his messenger that came to your city. This guy named Paul. He preached about this Jesus. You're trying to honor him as you were taught, and yet you're suffering. You're being persecuted. And in that situation, what are you likely to be thinking? You're likely to be thinking, what did I do to make God mad? Did I mess up somehow? Am I doing something wrong? Or maybe you'd be thinking, is this God also capricious? Is he unreliable? Is he changeable? Is he just like these other gods? Is he like a, a cruel boy at an anthill with a magnifying glass just putting the heat on to watch them squirm? Is that what this God is like? And Paul knows that this is their background, and I believe that this apparent contradiction between the character of God being a just God and the suffering of God's people is what Paul's addressing here. And the way that Paul addresses it is by kind of putting us in a time machine and sending us forward in time, taking us into the future to take a sneak peek into the heavenly courtroom on Judgment Day. And so he says that the, the suffering of those who suffer for the kingdom of God will be clearly seen as evidence for the righteous judgment of God, but it's not seen clearly now. When will it be seen clearly? Look at the second half of verse 7. It says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, then it will be clear that this is evidence for the righteous judgment of God. It's only on that day, what, what Paul calls in chapter 2, the day of the Lord, that we will finally see the enactment of the answer to that question. How does the persecution of the saints show the righteous judgment of God? We'll see the answer then by sight. It's still in the future, but Paul wants us to see it by faith right now. And so even though Paul is, I think Paul is so absolutely sure of what he's saying that the way that he talks in verses five and six, he's talking as if this is present reality. But I think that because he then says, no, this is, this is all going to be seen clearly when Christ returns. I think that we should understand him to mean something like this. Your persecutions and afflictions are being recorded as evidence for the day of judgment. And they will be brought out as evidence to prove that all the verdicts that God, the judge, hands down on that day, all those verdicts will be seen as truly, clearly, unquestionably righteous. And so how then does this help to establish us in the hope of our coming Lord? I think first, it assures us that those who suffer persecution for the kingdom of God will be declared worthy of the kingdom. Let's look again at verse 5. Says this, this, I believe, is persecution. This persecution is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God 
for which you are also suffering. And in this verse, the word that, it indicates a result. And the word may, we might read that and think that means might, as if there's some uncertainty. But it doesn't mean might, as if there's a question about it. No, the result is certain. The meaning is your suffering for the sake of the kingdom will result in God considering, or the word could be declaring you to be worthy of the kingdom. There's no uncertainty here. Your persecution that you are suffering, it is going to result in God declaring you to be worthy of the kingdom. That might sound to some of you like some kind of salvation by works, as if we can earn our way into the kingdom. That's not what Paul is saying. I think that he's saying something like the flip side of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37 and 38, when he said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And similarly, I think Paul is saying, he's putting it, Positively, I believe. If you have loved Jesus more than father, mother, son, and daughter, if you have taken up your cross daily and followed him, then you are worthy of him. If you're worthy of him, you're worthy of the kingdom because he is the king of the kingdom. We need to be careful not to misunderstand this, that neither Paul nor Jesus are negating justification through faith in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. I think that what they're saying is similar to what the Apostle James says, that faith without works is what? It's dead, right? It's no faith at all. Here Paul is saying the faith that saves is a faith that is willing to suffer persecution for Jesus. And so on Judgment Day, when God asks you why he should allow you into his kingdom, the only answer you should give is, because I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. This is, that's the first part of the, the answer to the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're, we're learning that now in my family and in our family worship times. And it's just such a sweet answer. I, there, there's a little bit more to it, but... We belong to Jesus. His blood is paid for all our sins. That's the answer that we should give. When God says, why should I allow you into my kingdom? And God will say, yes. That's the only reason I would let you into my kingdom. But now let's look at the history of your life for evidence of that faith. Let's see if it matches up with your claim of faith. And for every true believer, the evidence of our, there will be evidence in our lives that we have truly believed, that our faith is genuine. God's not going to open any file of any true believer and find it empty when he looks for evidence of faith. It will be there because the Holy Spirit works it in us. It will be there. And what Paul is saying here in 2 Thessalonians 5 is that part of the evidence that God will bring forward for some saints is the fact that they were willing and were in fact persecuted for the kingdom of God, that they were not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus to the point that they were afflicted for it. And God will hold this up as evidence on that day and say, see, 
Who dares claim that this saint's faith is false? They were willing to suffer and die for Jesus. Who can argue against this evidence? God will say, according to my righteous judgment, I declare this saint worthy of my kingdom. That's what verse 5 is saying. And, and I don't believe that Paul is saying that being actively, violently persecuted for the kingdom is necessary for entrance into the kingdom. I think other parts of Scripture would actually contradict that idea. But what he is saying is that for those who do experience persecution for the sake of Christ, that persecution should be reassuring evidence that they will be welcomed into the kingdom on the day that Christ returns. And if you've experienced any kind of persecution, whether light or severe for your faith, I've told a story before about one time when I was in high school, um, I, I took a stand for the truth, um, for the gospel, for uh, what I believed was taught in the Bible. I took a stand in the class and I was mocked for it. And it affirmed my faith. Now, that stand that I took, it didn't save me. It didn't make me righteous before God. But for me, it was evidence for me that, man, I'm an insecure high school kid. Why would I be willing to stand up in front of my whole class and be mocked? It's because I really believe this. It's because I believe what I've claimed to believe for so much of my life. And so, in this way, any time that we are willing to suffer to be persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. It gives us evidence that God will welcome us into his kingdom because our faith is genuine. But how do we know that this is true? How do we know that those who suffer persecution for the kingdom of God will be declared worthy of the kingdom? What Paul is saying as he goes on is that we can know this with absolute confidence because God always judges righteously. Now, we might take this for granted, but Paul didn't take it for granted. He, he wanted to actually make this the basis of his argument. And verse 6, I believe, is the crux of Paul's argument here. He says, leading into it, You can know right now that your persecutions are evidence that God will accept you into his kingdom on Judgment Day. Now, verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just, and that's the same word translated righteous in verse 5, God considers it just or righteous to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. And so Paul's whole encouragement here, it really hangs on this. If God doesn't judge righteously, then suffering for his kingdom might turn out to be worthless, to have been a waste, useless. But Paul is so convinced of the righteous character of God that he says, since indeed God does consider it right to execute perfect justice, you can be assured that your suffering is evidence that he will declare you to be worthy of his kingdom on the day of judgment. And it all hangs on the righteous judgment of God. And that's closely connected to the second way that I, I think Paul intends this to encourage the Thessalonian church and all the saints and that is <clears throat> this encouragement, that the persecution of the saints and all injustice in the world is evidence that the day of the Lord has not yet come. 
The persecution of the saints and all injustice is evidence that the day of the Lord has not yet come. And this might seem to us like an unnecessary encouragement, like, yeah, duh, of course the day of the Lord hasn't come. But I'm getting this. I think, I think that this is one of Paul's aims because in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So however it gets communicated to you, don't be shaken if you hear that the day of the Lord has come. So don't be shaken or alarmed if you hear this, because the day of the Lord hasn't come. And he, he has this in mind. Well, we're, we're going to look at that passage, as I said, in, in more detail in a few weeks. We don't know why or how this rumor um, had already come to be started. It's a young church. Um, we don't know how that happened. Paul had no doubt taught them about the glorious return of Christ when he uh, first was sharing the gospel with them. After that, he wrote a letter. We have it. It's 1 Thessalonians. He wrote a letter clarifying some things about the return of the Lord. Um, so we can expect that because of what he had taught them, that they were eagerly looking forward to the day of the Lord. They were anticipating it. They were longing for it. They were praying for it. And then just imagine... If you're in that church expecting, longing for the day of the Lord, you're being persecuted, and then people start saying, oh yeah, I think the day of the Lord has already come. Yeah, I think that thing that Paul was talking about, Jesus returning, I think that already happened. Well, you can imagine how devastating this would be, right? What a disappointment. What are we believing in? If this is it, we're being persecuted. We've trusted in Jesus. We've been promised all this, this glory, all this joy in him. He's returned. This great day has happened and we're still being persecuted. We're still suffering. So we've suffered so that we can suffer some more when he returns. And so, while for us, that way of thinking probably seems pretty foreign, Paul knew that some of them were thinking this way. And so he's pointing to the very thing that they're struggling with, which was their persecution, in order to reassure them. He's saying, your persecution is unjust. And when Jesus returns, he will execute perfect justice. So if injustice still exists on the earth, then you can be sure that Jesus has not yet returned. The day of the Lord has not come if justice still exists on the earth. And your persecution it's unjust. But just as sure as he is that Christ has not yet returned, Paul is absolutely certain that Christ will return one day. And on that great day of the Lord, the suffering of the saints for the sake of the kingdom will be evidence for the vindication of God's justice. The record of the suffering of the church and the evil persecution done by unbelievers will be brought into the courtroom on Judgment Day, held forth as evidence that God's rewarding of the church and his punishment of the persecutors is just. It is right. This evidence will be held up for all created beings to see that God is a righteous judge. Listen to this description of that day from Revelation 
16. This is verses 4 through 7. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It is justice. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Yes, God's justice is delayed for now. But God will not let the glory of his justice be obscured forever. One day it will be on display for all to see clearly. And there will be no question about it. The day of judgment, the, the, the day of the Lord, it's not going to be some sort of spiritual, uh, uh, spiritualized or really subtle or allegorical day. No, this day will not leave the justice of God in question. On that day, all, whether rejoicing or reluctant, reluctantly, all will acknowledge that God's justice is perfect. There will be no question. And so, as those who, right now, for the most part, are not facing persecution, how do we apply this? What do we do with this right now? Just a few things before we close. One is that when we do experience persecution, as some of us maybe have, are, or will soon, don't grow bitter, angry, or vengeful. Don't withdraw from the world. We trust God to carry out justice. As Romans 12 said, leave it to the Lord. Leave it to his justice. Trust his justice. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's above our pay grade. Let's try to bring justice. Secondly, when you see injustice in the world, let it remind you that it's happening because the Lord has not yet returned and let it stir up a longing for him to return. Let it stir up a longing for the day of the Lord. And third, when you see the church being persecuted, I'm speaking here of the universal church, the worldwide church, I should say, when you see the church being persecuted, let it stir you up to remember them, to encourage them any way that you can. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. I believe the writer of Hebrews here is speaking specifically of those who are in prison and being mistreated for the sake of the kingdom. We're supposed to so identify with them because they are part of the body of Christ that we would think of them as if we were in prison with them, which would lead us to, what would we do if we were in prison? Pray. I believe this is a call to pray fervently for the church, the persecuted church. And you may, if, uh, if you just follow, you know, the, 
the main news outlets, main news channels, you won't hear anything about the persecuted church. They're not going to be reported there. They're not going to be reported as persecution, even if you hear about beheadings. And so I would point you to some resources like Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors that will help you to know how you can pray for the persecuted church and open your eyes to the fact that the church is being persecuted severely throughout the world. And I would encourage you, um, actually, are we still having a prayer gathering tonight? I know you're sick, Steve. Yes. So we're going to have a prayer gathering tonight, 6.30, and we are going to pray for the church. We're going to pray for those who are persecuted. I guess we could pray without Steve anyway, couldn't we? We do. He's excellent at leading us in prayer, but we could pray without you, Steve, if we had to. But let the persecution of the church stir you up to encourage them, to remember them, to pray for them. And then fourth, don't let the injustice in the world and the persecution of the saints shake your faith in the goodness, the righteousness, the justness of God. That There will be a day when he will vindicate his Name when all charges of injustice against God will be displayed as false. God will not fail to glorify his righteousness. You can set your hope on that. This is true not just for justice being done, but for everything we hope for when Christ returns. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And lastly, Seek to know the beauty of Christ more so that it becomes irrevocably embedded in your heart that he is worth suffering for. And resolve right now to willingly suffer any persecution that might come your way for the sake of the kingdom. Resolve it right now. Jesus is worth suffering for. And one reason why we must do this is that intentionally avoiding persecution by denying Christ is evidence that one will not be considered worthy to enter the kingdom. In Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. set it in your heart now. If God calls me to suffer for the kingdom, I'm willing because Jesus is worth it. God considers it just to pay back affliction to those who afflict his people. And I don't know if you've thought about it, <clears throat> but the man who penned this letter was such a person. He was an afflictor of the church. He persecuted the church. In Acts, we read about a man named Saul, who later became known as Paul, who sought to destroy the church. So why did God not consider it just to repay Paul with that kind of affliction? It's because of the cross. Because God brought Paul to his knees at the foot of the cross, and God considered it just. He considered it right to forgive Paul, to not repay 
Paul because Paul's affliction, the way that he had afflicted the church, his guilt for that affliction, it was laid upon Jesus. That's what made the difference. God's just sentence of condemnation was carried out. It was, but it was carried out towards Jesus, not towards Paul. Jesus was condemned in his place. But it's not just Paul or anyone who persecutes the church that stands guilty before God. Listen to Romans 3, 23 through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this, this putting forth of Christ as a propitiation to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Because here we have this again. God's righteousness was obscured because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And so, putting forth Christ on the cross as a propitiation, this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, he might be a just judge and also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross was about justifying sinners, declaring sinners righteous in a way that magnified both the mercy of God and the perfect justice of God. God's justice will be carried out against your sin. As we just read, all of us have sinned. And so there are only two options. We either suffer the eternal consequences of God's just wrath against our sin, or we throw ourselves on the mercy of God, trusting that Christ bore the wrath of God in our place. Those are the only two options. And when we take communion each week, it puts those clearly before us. It puts that question in our minds. It should. Am I trusting Christ to be my wrath-bearing Savior? Or will I stand condemned before God on Judgment Day? And so as we prepare to take communion this morning, if you are not trusting in Christ to be your wrath-bearing Savior, then we ask that you not come and take communion because this communion meal, it represents our faith in Jesus. It represents our trust that he has borne the wrath of God for our sin. But consider carefully what it means if you can't come and take communion for that reason. It means that you stand condemned before God for your sin. His justice is perfect, and he will carry it out. And we want you to be one of those whose Sin is perfectly, for all time, always, every sin covered by the blood of Jesus. So, if you're not trusting in him, please don't come, but we would love to pray with you, to talk with you. If you don't feel comfortable approaching one of the pastors this morning, you can fill out a connection card, drop it in one of the boxes, and we, we can connect with you this week. 
but for all who should come. Come to receive communion this morning, rejoicing that the justice of God assures that the the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for you, that his just wrath was fully poured out on Christ. And come rejoicing that his spirit will fulfill, will complete this good work that Christ has begun in you, that there will be evidence of your genuine faith on that day. And so communion here at Piney Ridge is for all those that I just described, all who believe and trust in Christ alone, and who've been baptized in a local church. If you want to learn more about baptism, why we believe that that should happen before communion, um, please talk to one of us or fill out a connection card. But the way we take communion here is that you'll stand in just a moment. You'll exit to your left. You'll come up here in the front and take the communion elements. Take them and then go around to the right, head back to your seat and take them there. You can take them with your family or alone. But take them in faith, in joy. Would you pray with me? And then for those who should come, you're welcome to come and take communion. God, we thank you for your justice. We thank you that you are who you are, that you are a God of justice, but that you are also a God of mercy, that you are a God of grace. And that in the cross of Christ, there is no contradiction between those two. So we rest in Christ, even as we hope for your justice to be done on this earth. Jesus, be glorified among your people now, we pray. Amen.